Well, again, I want to welcome you to Big Valley Grace Community Church. You know, when you think about our name, our name really explains what it is we're about, what it is we're trying to accomplish. You take our name, Big Valley Grace Community Church. We want to reach people in this big central valley with the grace of Jesus Christ in community with his church. And if you are a guest with us this week, and I want you to know we're really glad that you are here. We're really glad that you've chosen to join us here at Big Valley Grace in our online campus. And I hope that you are encouraged. You're encouraged by the gospel message that you hear about the hope that there is, the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. And I would, I would welcome you anytime during the gathering this weekend to utilize the online connect card. It is a great tool for you to connect with us. If, if you are new and you wanna let us know that you're new, we would love for that. We would love to reach out to you and just say thanks for joining us this weekend. But I also just wanna share with everyone, if, if maybe you're in a spot uh, where you're not doing so well right now and we would love to come alongside you and pray for you the online connect card or after the worship gathering, you can interact in the chat features on the various platforms. There's, there's a team ready to pray for you, whether you submit it through the online connect card or in the chat, and we wanna do that. We wanna pray with you, we wanna come alongside you in the burden that you are experiencing right now. We wanna help point you to Jesus Christ and the relief from the burden that you will find in him. And so right here from the beginning, I encourage you, would you let us walk with you if you're in a hard spot? Would you let us walk side by side with you and help encourage you and point you to Jesus Christ? Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. It's in Exodus chapter 20 that we find the first account of the Ten Commandments being given, which is the series that we're in right now about the Ten Commandments. We're in week seven looking at the seventh commandment, and before we get into actually looking at what the seventh commandment is, I want to encourage you in something that uh, Paul writes to the church, the group of believers who were gathered in the city of Rome a couple thousand years ago. He says this in Romans chapter eight. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna share this verse multiple times with you throughout the weekend uh, as I share from the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus, when he spoke about commandments, he had quite a bit to say, and we're gonna look at that here as we begin tonight, uh, this weekend. But I wanna encourage you that we've got a great tool that's available for you and your family to use all throughout the week. Uh, my family has really been taking advantage of this 50-day adventure journal. And I wanna share with you how we've been using it. Uh, Monday through Friday, we've been doing the devotionals that are, are in this journal. Um, on Saturday, my wife has kind of done a recap of the, the week of the things that stuck out to her. But we've been taking pictures of the journal, marking it up, marking notes, and we've been sending it to our family members so that we can just kind of have dialogue about it. 
And it's really enhanced then whether it's on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, um, we're worshiping together, whether it be on our online campus or one of our physical campus locations, Modesto or Ceres, that our family would have some really great discussion around the word of God. So we're in the word of God together during the week and then after the worship gathering, we're having great discussion. And I just wanna encourage you to take advantage of this resource. It is absolutely free and it is available online at bigvalleygrace.org. So let's look at some of the things that Jesus says as he speaks about the commandments. In Matthew chapter five, verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's really important that as we get into looking at commandments in scripture, that we recognize that Jesus is, he is the fulfillment of the law. The Ten Commandments are the basic structure for the entire Old Testament law, and as we study it, we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment. Two verses later, in Matthew 5, 19, he says this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's not a good thing. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is an excellent thing. What Jesus is showing us here in this verse is that obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ bring incredible blessing. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We also see in this verse that there's an incredible blessing that comes when we instruct others to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ whether you do them or you teach them, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In another passage of scripture, in Matthew chapter 22, we see what Jesus points to as the greatest commandment. He says in this passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. In this passage right here, we get uh, the core value that we have as a church of total worship total worship, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, that we will worship God with all of who we are. And when we read a commandment, we see it in the perspective that God wants all of us to love him. This passage goes on and Jesus says a second commandment is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And from this passage, we get one of our core values, which is neighborly service, to serve one another in love, to serve others as we would want to be served ourselves. And so this passage helps us to give perspective that when we look at a commandment, God wants us to love other people in the same way that I want to be loved. And then he says something about these two commandments. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I want you to imagine two really large stones. Uh, one stone says, love God, total worship. And, and one stone says, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, neighborly service. Love God and love people. And that on these two stones, we would take our Bible and we would set our Bible on these two stones because he's saying on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And when you read your Bible, that you would read your Bible from the perspective that God wants you to, 
to love him with everything that you have. And he wants, to love, he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God, total worship, and loving neighbor. The idea of neighborly service. In, in Matthew chapter 28, we see a commission that Jesus gives. It's really sending us as the church on mission. And Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have this incredible moment where Jesus establishes that he is in total authority. He's in total authority. And he has a promise that he's gonna be with us forever. And, and there's three other core values that we have as a church that we pull from this text right here. And the first one is that we would have this endless reach. We would keep reaching because he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we would have a, a passion to, to endlessly keep reaching for the glory of God. There's another core value that we have of connected fellowship. We see this when we baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, when you've been baptized into the name of God and I've been baptized into the name of God, we are connected in fellowship because of the name of God. And then he says, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. We get this core value of, of just wanting to grow, this continuous growth that happens in our lives as we follow Jesus Christ. We keep growing, keep growing in our love for him and our love for others. And it's from these texts that we get our mission, which is to love God, love people, and make disciples. I'll put it this way. We are a disciple-making church. That's who we are. We're about making disciples, and we want to give God glory by helping Neighbors that we find that are in need find the grace of Jesus Christ that they might experience his love and the ability to love other people that they would learn to lead themselves as individuals and be able to lead others to Christ and that they would live that way for the rest of their life. So as we come to this commandment and we understand these are the things that Jesus taught we have that as a framework as we look at commandment number seven, which we see it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And it is very simple. And it is this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now to understand this command, we can look at it from a lot of different angles, but the angle that I wanna look at it together this weekend is that we would understand this seventh commandment by observing three actions of God. We would understand the seventh commandment by observing three actions of God. And I wanna remind you of the verse that I shared already with you as we begin here. And it's Romans chapter eight, verse one. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. An incredible verse for us to have in mind and in heart as we look at this commandment together as a church family this weekend. Action number one is design. And we see that God designs, he designs lots of things. He designed you and he designed me. One of the things that God designs is he designs 
family. And commandment number seven, for us to understand it, we need to really look at this action that God has taken to design family. And to do that, we go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Okay, so context. We are lifeless dust in the hands of a living God until a living God breathes life into the dust, into us. And then the formed dust experiences life in the living God and only in the living God. This is how the first human being came to life. And we're gonna call this first human being for a little bit here, the living dust man. He was dust in the hands of God and God breathed life to him and he became a living being. In verse eight, it says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and he put the man there whom he had formed. And so the living God places this living dust man in this moment in a living garden that God planted. You know, this is the very first resident. In the very first residence, he had a garden terrace. And here we have the very first human being, the living dust man in a living garden placed there by the living God. And it is a great reminder that God has placed all of us in a location. He's placed us in a location. In verse 15 in that same chapter, it says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, in this moment, we find out something. We find out that this man, this living dust man here, that he is, he's given a job in the garden. And we find that job here in this verse. It's to work it and to keep it. He's to work the garden and he's to keep the garden. He's to work the garden so it can produce and he's to keep the garden and protect it. And so we see here that this living dust man was placed for a purpose to produce and to protect. And God had a plan and God's working a plan out. In verse 16 and 17, it says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the first recorded Bible study and God's having a Bible study with this living dust man in the living garden where he has placed him. And God communicates, the living God communicates the living word to this living dust man. And he communicates three things. He communicates to him that he has freedom. He has freedom. It says, you may surely eat of the garden. He has freedom to eat of the garden. But then God communicates a boundary. He says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God communicates freedom and he communicates a boundary. And then God communicates consequences if that boundary is crossed. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know, God has designed us to live in freedom with boundaries so that we might avoid consequences that would be very harmful to us and very negative to us. Why? Because God loves us. God loves us and he created us 
in love. In verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make a helper fit for him. It's really interesting here because six times God declares that creation is good. And then after he creates human beings, after he creates mankind, he says it's very good. But in this moment, all of a sudden, God sees that Adam is alone and he says it's not good. It's not good that the living dust man is alone. And so God's gonna solve this issue of not good with a helper that is fit for him. In verse 21 and 22 of Genesis chapter two, it says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. (laughs) God is the first recorded anesthesiologist here. He has Adam go into a deep sleep. God's the first recorded surgeon here. It says that he took out one of this living dust man's ribs. And then God designs a second human But instead of forming the second human out of the dust, he forms this second human out of the rib, out of the first human. And he designs a living rib woman. And he brings this living rib woman to the living dust man. And in verse 23, it says, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first time the living dust man has ever seen the living rib woman. And I want to reread this verse with a little bit different emphasis. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. You know, you got to remember, the living dust man, he's waking up from general anesthesia in this moment, right? He's waking up from a deep sleep that God put him in, and now God is waking him up from that sleep. And the first thing he's seeing is he's seeing this living rib woman for the very first time who is going to be his bride. He's seeing his bride for the very first time, and he breaks out in romantic poetry in this moment. You know, I have had surgery and I have had general anesthesia and I have woken up out of a deep sleep and I can remember seeing my bride for the first time after waking up from surgery and I can tell you in that moment, there may or may not have been romantic poetry that came flowing out of my mouth. I actually can't remember what I said in those moments, but what an incredible moment for the living dust man in this moment as he's waking up and he's seeing the living rib woman and he breaks out into poetry. And then verse 24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's not even a father or mother yet and God's already casting vision for what the family is supposed to look like 
And so here we see God's incredible design for the family, and it starts with a man taking action to leave his family of origin. And then it continues with a man taking action to hold fast to his wife. And then it continues with both of them taking action, and they become one flesh. And then in verse 25, we see the result. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the proper result of God's design for a family. Two things we see here that result from God's proper design for the family. And the first thing is it says they were naked. They are exposed. They're naked, they're exposed. And they're not ashamed because they're honored. They're not ashamed because they honor one another. They are naked and not ashamed. They are exposed, but they are honored. And when we see God's perfect design for the family, I want you to know it is beautiful. And there is nothing wrong with God's perfect design for family. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfect design. And we can look at this account of God designing family and we can look at it and say, it is beautiful. And God is awesome. And God is a good designer. And God takes action and he designs. And in this account, we see that God designs family. Action number one is God designs. Action number two is protection. Action number two is protection. We can understand the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, when we understand that God takes action to protect. And he takes action to protect the family. See, God designed something really good. And so he protects the good family that he designed. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it says simply, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. There's no explanation given. Why? Well, because the people who were hearing this, they understood what adultery was. And so there wasn't a need for uh, adultery to be explained. It was just simple enough for God to command his people, the Israelites, you shall not commit adultery. Now, remember the Bible study from the garden. Freedom, boundaries, and consequences for crossing those boundaries. Well, there's freedom in marriage. And there is a boundary of adultery. And there are consequences when the boundary of adultery is crossed in marriage. In Leviticus 18.20, we see what one of those consequences is. In Leviticus 18.20, God is speaking uh, and he's, he's giving the Levitical law about how his people Israel are to operate. And this verse says, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Well, what's the context here? The context is the promised land. God is leading his people towards the promised land, the promised land where God is gonna be the God of his people and the people are gonna live in reflection of their God. And God is driving out unclean nation after unclean nation with unclean practice after unclean practice. And one of the unclean practices of the unclean nations that God is driving out is sexual immorality, whether it be adultery or fornication. And so God is saying, that's not gonna work for me and my people. That's not gonna be okay. I've got something better for my people because when my people cross this boundary of adultery, it leads to a consequence of them being unclean. And in this sense, it was unclean in worship. 
Unclean in worship, the worship, it has damaged their relationship of worship with God. You know, in America, in the United States of America, we like to protect our stuff. We like to use locks and alarms and cameras and walls and weapons and guards and insurance and lawyers and passcodes and fingerprints. We do a lot to protect the things that are important to us. Well, God takes seriously protecting what he has designed in the family. And listen to this next verse of how seriously God takes it with his people, the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. For the nation of Israel, God is saying, adultery is completely unacceptable and those who commit this sin will be eradicated from the nation. Why? Because it destroys family in the way that God has designed family, but it also destroys worship and it destroys someone's ability to purely worship before a pure God. And so in Proverbs 6, 32, we see something interesting here. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Adultery actually brings destruction. And God is wanting to protect us from destruction because he loves us so much. Now, Jesus, when he speaks of this command, he sharpens the command. He doesn't loosen it. He makes it sharper. And he moves it from only the external to also include the internal. And in Matthew chapter five, verse 27 and 28, Jesus says, you've heard that it is said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God designs family and God protects family. And Jesus is communicating here how to protect the family that God has designed. And Jesus is saying, not only should you not take action of adultery, but you should not have the heart of adultery either. Jesus goes on in this passage and he says, he explains how serious he is he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, <laughs> throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. That is extremely, extremely sharp language. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members that your whole, than that your whole body would go into hell. What, what is Jesus communicating? What is his point? Well, the point is, is that there is freedom to live within the boundaries that God has designed. And that freedom, that life of freedom within the boundaries that God has designed, it is far better than crossing over those boundaries, breaking those boundaries, and living in the consequences of your sin. And so Jesus is saying it's far better to get rid of that which causes you to stumble than to live in sin because God has something for you, a beautiful design for you to live in. It's pure and it's righteous and it's holy. He has a design for you and he wants you to live within the freedom of the boundaries that he's created. In 
Mark, Jesus is speaking. He calls the crowd to himself with his disciples and he says to them, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself and let him take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying it is better to deny yourself than to go headlong following after your sinful pleasure and your sinful desires. It's better that you deny yourself and you follow me. It requires dying to ourself, taking up our cross, dying to those desires and finding the life that we really long for that's really satisfying and that will really be our true pleasure and finding that life in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Remember, God wants your total worship. Look at this question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? God wants your total worship. He wants your soul to be dedicated to him and him alone. God designs and protects family. God designs and protect, protects worship, your worship, that you would be able to worship him with everything that you have. And the bottom line is adultery destroys Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Look at, he calls the entire generation here adulterous and sinful. The, the generation is actually adulterous. The generation is actually sinful. Adultery is prohibited by God because God is protecting us from destroying our families. And he's protecting us from destroying our relationship of worship with him. Actions God takes. Action number one is God designs. He designs family. Action number two is God protects. God protects family. And action number three is salvation. God brings salvation and he brings salvation to families. And this may be the most important thing you've heard in a long time is that God can bring salvation to families. Adultery has impacted many of us and lust has impacted all of us. So what is it that we are to do? Jesus says this in John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but would have eternal life. This is the message of the sweet gospel to an adulterous and sinful generation and how sweet is the sound of the gospel. God loves us and God has given his son, Jesus Christ, for us. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we can experience salvation. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God designs family. God protects family. And when we have chosen to break the boundaries of freedom that God has designed, God comes in and he saves family. God saves families, even from adultery and even from lust. God saves families. Verse 18, whenever, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, faith in Jesus Christ, it saves us 
from the destruction of our sin. All of our sin, even adulterous sin. And so to not trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your adulterous sin, to save you from your sin of lust, to not trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin is to actually destroy your family even further. God saves families. Verse 19, and this is the judgment that light came into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, God wants to save us. God wants to save our families and we must believe in Jesus Christ. The darkness of sin destroys, but the light of Jesus, it heals and it restores. In verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. You see, the enemy wants to instill fear in you. The enemy wants you to be afraid The enemy wants you to not believe that God can save you. But Jesus wants to bring you back to the freedom that you were designed to be in. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what is this true thing that God has for you? The true thing that God has for you to do is to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus, to accept salvation and to accept the restoration that Jesus wants to bring into your life. In John chapter eight, we find an account. It is a heartbreaking account. It is a horrific account. And then it turns into something amazing and beautiful. Let's read it together. In John eight, verse two, it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. Jesus is coming to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And in verse three, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. This is horrible. Do you see this scene? They drag this woman into the middle of the court and they say, she's been caught in the very act of adultery. How embarrassing Remember, God's design, God's design for families is that someone would be exposed and honored. But in this scene, someone is being exploited and someone is being humiliated and shamed. And it is not what God has designed and it's heartbreaking. And in verse five, it says, these, these accusers, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? By the way, they horribly misquote scripture here. I read to you the scripture already. It's the man and the woman. They are both to be brought and they just isolate the woman here. Where's the man? How can someone be caught in the very act of adultery and be alone? I'm confused on that, how that can happen. And yet here, there's only a woman and they're only accusing a woman and it's a horrible injustice what's happening in this moment. Verse six, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so Jesus bent down and he wrote his finger with his finger on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. There's smart people who have smart ideas about what Jesus writes in this moment in the ground. I don't know. What I do know is what the next verse says. It says they continued to ask him and then he stood up and he said this, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. Jesus levels the scene. There are now only two groups. There is the group without sin and there is the group with sin. In verse eight, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I don't know what he was writing, but apparently he was not done. But I do know this, whatever he was writing, it was holy, it was scriptural, it was godly, and it was like finger painting in the dust. 
for the glory of God in this moment. And it has an amazing impact. In verse nine, it says, but when they heard it, when they heard him give the challenge, whoever is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. There's two groups, those without sin, those with sin. And when they heard this challenge, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why? Why the older ones? I don't know. Maybe because they're wiser. I don't know. I'm not sure, but we see that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him and there's still only two groups. It's just now Jesus and this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and there's still only two groups. There's still only two groups. There's still only one group that has no sin and one group that has sin and there's one person in each of those groups. You see, in this moment, Jesus was the only one who could have thrown that stone Jesus is the only one who is without sin. And Jesus is the only one, by his own words, quoting scripture, Jesus was the only one who could have picked up a a stone in this moment and thrown it at this woman to give her the punishment. But what happens? In verse 10, we see something very different. It says, Jesus stood up from riding in the ground and he says to this woman who'd been caught in adultery, woman, where are they? Where are they? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Woman, where are your accusers? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And in verse 11, she says, no one, Lord. No one. It's just you and me. There's only two groups here. A group without sin and a group with sin. It's just you and me. No one. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you? This may be the word of God that is for you right now. When you hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus does not condemn He does not pick up a stone and throw it at her to stone her, though he's the only one there without sin. And that's not what he does. Jesus does not condemn her. He gives her the command to go. Leave this life of sin. Leave this scene. Leave this disaster. Leave it. Leave it. And go and sin no more. He cast vision for her for what salvation in him would be like to have life in Christ, free from these incredible consequences of breaking the boundaries that God has set up. This is a beautiful scene of Jesus Christ offering forgiveness and grace and mercy. You know, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, He had spent much time with them and he understood that there was a lot of sin happening in the church. And so listen to the list of the things that he lists off as he addresses this church. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What a great question. Don't you know that? Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And now he brings a list of sins that he wants this church to be aware that they need to leave. 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't live like that. That's not what God has for you. And then in verse 11, he says something really beautiful. He says, and such were some of you. Can I say that to you right now? And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Jesus Christ has come and he has washed away our sin by the power of his blood, the blood that was shed for us on the cross, the cup of communion that we remembered together this weekend. Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you. Listen to this verse again. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no one to condemn you. And Jesus would say, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, God, thank you for your word. It is so encouraging to open up the scriptures and to see the grace that Jesus Christ has for us. At the will of the Father, at your will, grace has been given to us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we no longer have to live in sin. And we no longer have to live being owned by our sin. But we can find freedom in you. Freedom in Jesus Christ. Lord, for all of us this weekend, we all have sin. We all have sin. We may not have had the physical act of adultery, but we've had adultery of heart. God, we've all experienced sin. And Lord, thank you that you welcome us into freedom. That there's no condemnation in you when we trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And so for all of us this weekend, Lord, would we allow your son to say to us, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Father, help us to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. That we might be a people who obey the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's family said, amen.